Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. And this is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. If you want a free sample copy of the magazine that sponsored the show, Premier Christianity, you can go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on the profile, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by the Bishop of Kensington, Graham Tomlin. Bishop Graham is the former Dean and current Principal of St. Melitus College, the largest Anglican theological college in the country. He's the author of many books on a variety of topics, including Martin Luther, Priesthood and the Cross. He's also one of the hosts of God Pod, a podcast featuring theological discussion and debate. And he's married to Janet, has two children and supports Bristol City. Graham, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Thank you, Sam. Um, I have to say, Graham, I'm actually very used to hearing your voice. Um, not so used to meeting you in person, um, because I am, of course, a regular listener to to God Pod, this podcast that I mentioned uh, in the introduction. This is a, a wonderful discussion that comes out every month about life, theology, and just about everything else. And it is, of course, complete with tea and biscuits. You always comment on what we biscuits you have yeah. around the table. I'm sorry to say there are no biscuits they are right here. At the a bit moment. disappointed. No biscuits in front of us, but you know we'll. <laughs> survive somehow it's probably very good for me anyway it's a wonderfully uh wonderfully british podcast um as i say complete with with tea and biscuits and, and discussion do you want to say say a bit about how it came about and where you're at with it at the moment well it started um a good 12 years ago now i think when uh, uh we i just recently moved to london to help set up what eventually became St. Melitus college had a couple of colleagues jane williams who was um, married to Rowan Williams, who of course was at the time was Archbishop of Canterbury, Mike Lloyd, who is now the principal of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. And um, I remember it started because I, I used to walk my dog in the park around the corner. And, and it was in the early days of podcasts. There weren't many podcasts around. And I used to listen to the um, the Ricky Gervais podcast. And uh, I thought it was hilarious. It was very, very funny. It was, um, But it also struck me as very, very simple. It was basically three blokes sitting around a table with a microphone or two or three. Um, just talking about whatever they wanted to talk about. And people would email in and questions and, and so on. So I suddenly had this idea, well, we could do this uh, with regard to theology and throw in a little bit of humor, a little bit of um, kind of banter as well, but uh, um, to, and discuss some of the sort of issues that you know that matter to us. I think it was also because actually the three of us, when we started out as a Melitus, one of the things we experienced in our previous life in theological education, we, we didn't get much time to talk theology. Right. So we actually thought this would be quite a good excuse for us to talk yeah. it. Maybe one or two people. People might want to listen to our good discussions as we carry on. So yeah. that's where it began. And you found way more than one or two. Now people all over the world listening in. Yeah, I think it's had well over a million downloads now over the years that we've um, been doing it. We've had about 120 episodes. And so uh, each time it's, it's fascinating. You'd have thought we'd have run out of things to talk about after 120 <laughs> sessions. But we still keep on finding things. And I guess because Christian faith is such a sort of big, expansive thing, there's, there's no end to things you can talk mm. about. And so we respond to the different questions that people yeah. e- email in. Well, here on the profile, which I should mention is, of course, also available as a podcast, um, we do like to delve into a person's early life. So I'd love to hear something about life growing up for you. I understand your dad was a Baptist minister, so I guess Christian faith was there right from the start. Yeah, he was. Yeah, my dad was a Baptist minister, and um, uh, I was born in Bristol, down in the West Country. You can probably hear a bit of the accent. It also explains my football team. And um, he was a minister of Baptist church uh, there. So I grew up in the for the first six, seven years or so, you know, as a... Baptist minister's kid and um, 
but I guess, uh, you know, as it happens with a lot of sort of young people, you could have grown up within the church. It was always part of my um, my background. It was part of what I was taught to do, taught to pray, taught to know God as my father and Jesus as my savior right from the very beginning. So that's that's the beginnings of my Christian story. Um, and understanding your teenage years, though, you went through a, a period of, of atheism. So what what kind of changed around that point? Yeah, I did. I mean, I went through a period, I think, in my middle teens when I guess what happens in, as to a lot of teenagers at that stage brought up in Christian homes is that you start to think for yourself. You start to begin to question what your parents have always taught you and what you maybe learn in church. You start reading other stuff around it. Um, I guess I was always a bit of a sort of intellectual nerd, I think. And, and my rebellion was not sex, drugs and rock and roll. It was reading Nietzsche. That's kind of what I did when I was a teenager. And it was my sort of little bit way of kind of rebelling against my my background but um uh, but i can remember a number of different things you know seeing christians that i didn't think were kind of living a very christian life and feeling a bit well you know is there any sort of substance to this um i remember my parents kept on making me go to church during this time and i can remember sort of sitting there you know reading the bible and trying to find the mistakes um on the loopholes and all that yeah. kind of thing and uh, so I, I definitely went through a period where i i was i think yeah, I, I, when i look back on it now it feels a bit like if you like my, you know, what I rejected was a very childish form of Christian faith. I thought, you know, as I'm growing up, I'm asking more questions. I've got more, um, you know, more questions that the Christian faith didn't seem to be able to answer at the time. And so I kind of rejected it. And I would have very much called myself an atheist mm-hmm. uh, at that period. I think the sad thing is that very many young people never come back into Christian faith uh, after that. Um, after going through that sort of yeah. maybe sometimes inevitable process yeah. of, I mean, of it, teenage. It's somewhat of a almost a common story, isn't it, to hear of, oh, yes, so-and-so was brought up in a Christian family, yeah. but then around teenage or even student years walked away. And as you say, it, it's quite common to hear that that's where people have remained for a long time. So so what was different for you? What brought you back? I think it was a mixture of things. I say my, my parents made me go to church, not every week, but you know every now and again. I don't know whether that's a good thing or not to do. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to every parent. But in some ways, that was quite good for me because it meant that I kept on um, being exposed to Christian teaching and Christian thinking. And the fact that I was reading the Bible, even if I was looking for the mistakes, made me keep reading it. I had a group of Christian friends who um, stuck with me during that time and uh, didn't abandon me, which was really good. I think in a lot of cases, that's what happens. You get abandoned by the church. You get abandoned by the the friends you have and then inevitably you drift away and um i think what drew me back to faith was an increasing sense that actually uh, i fa- i began to find some of the answers to the questions that i had i realized there was a there was a much greater richness and depth to christian faith than the version that i thought i'd put to one side uh, and also i think so there was something about the christian friends that i had that really impressed me and it's a, it's a bit of a cliche but i sort of thought well they have something that I don't, and mm. whatever it was, I, I wanted it. It's interesting how it's it's both people on both sides of the coin. So both people who you saw who weren't living the Christian yeah. life kind of put you off, but then ultimately mm. it was partly people who brought you back again when you saw that they were yeah. loving you and reaching sure. out to you and, and living differently. Yeah, and that is the Christian church, isn't it? And um, I, mean, I think we know someone once said, you know, um, you know, I can't join the church because it's full of hypocrites. And so, well, you know, why don't you join us? One more won't make any difference. Um, <laughs> and I suppose I began to see the sense of that. Yes, I could look at other Christians or Christians who didn't seem to be living a very Christian life that I wasn't very impressed by. Um, but then when I actually thought, you know, well, um, can I really sit on my high horse and, yeah. and condemn them for doing that? Well, actually, 
I, when I was growing up as a Christian and yeah. even coming into Christian faith, am I confident that I will be always living a perfect Christian life? Yeah. Of course I won't be. And so actually there's an element of, of sort of disjunction. You don't want that disjunction to get too, too, too far. But it was the combination of, of uh, that insight um, also with some Christian people who were genuinely living the Christian life in front of me that helped to bring me back. Yeah. You went to uh, grammar school and then Oxford University. So I guess the kind of intellectual appetite was there from an early age. Yeah, it was. I think it, it was always important to me that Christian faith made sense. It wasn't just a, a kind of emotional journey. I think there is a, an emotional journey to be made in Christian faith. I think that's a part of faith that has to be. It can't be just a sort of cerebral intellectual thing. But I guess for for me, that's always been a, an important part of, of faith, that it's something that, that that makes sense not that you can explain it all rationally mm-hmm. um i think as st augustine says if you can understand it it's not god um so there's an element of, uh, of always that you're grappling with something which is beyond you which is a mystery but at the same time there is a, a an internal coherence to christian faith and trying to understand that has always uh, been quite important to mm-hmm. me so um so all the way through those teenage years finding faith again or late teenage years and then um through university Sort of grappling with the intellectual mm. um, uh, foundations and nature of Christian faiths yeah. was really, really important yeah. for me if I was going to believe this and live it. And what did you study at Oxford? I did English. English it was my degree. So I didn't do theology at that stage. I was really glad I did English. Um, I loved it. I thought it was a um, fascinating way that just brought together kind of history, ideas, philosophy, all within the study of literature. And um, and uh, it also enabled you to encounter one or two key figures in um, English literary history who obviously have a well. You know, you can't understand English literature without a, without a knowledge of its mm. Christian foundations. You know, that, um, before the sort of eighteenth century, pretty well everyone writes with a kind of Christian framework of one kind or another. And when you're dealing with people like you know John Milton, or you're dealing with people like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, these are people who've thought deeply about Christian theology, and and I found that really fascinating. Mm while I was doing that to study right. as well. And from English to insurance, I understand. Your, one of your first jobs was yeah. in insurance. How did that come about? Uh, well, when I left university, I'd, I worked for a church for a year, uh, partly thinking, well, you know, am I going to get ordained or, or, or whatever? That was slightly in the back of my mind. I wasn't quite sure about that at the end of the process and thought, well, I want to spend a bit of time uh, doing a kind of ordinary job, as it were. Um, uh, and slightly randomly ended up working for an insurance company for a couple of years. Um, and uh, in some ways, I think that was, that was quite good for me. I mean, I, by that stage, I think I'd begun to think maybe getting ordained was probably the right path for me. But actually, having done a, done a, a job for a number of years and trying to do church stuff alongside that, you know, helping out in a youth group, just going to church on a Sunday, being an ordinary lay person in a church, those few years were quite valuable for mm. me, I think, because later on, as an ordained person in the church you sometimes I, th- I think vicars could not really understand some of the pressures that are on lay people they were trying to be christians in their environment and having that a little bit of experience of that mm. uh, i'm quite grateful for yeah you you hear that criticism quite a lot of politicians you, you hear about career politicians mm. that if you go into politics it's useful to have actually some real world you know kind of life experience uh, are we saying then that it, the, the same can be true if you're if you're a vicar if you're part of the church establishment that actually it's useful to know where quote unquote ordinary people are in their everyday life i think it it really is helpful to to have that i mean there are different ways of getting it um and there used to be a policy in the church of england that young people would come to 
to uh, offer themselves to ordination. They'd be told, oh, go away and do a job for 10 years and then come back. Right. And, of course, they went away and did 10 years and never came back. Um, <laughs> so we kind of changed our policy, which I think was the right thing to do, to say, well, look, if God is calling you, it doesn't matter what age it is, God is calling you. And the church has to respond to that. So these days that's less common. Uh, that people get told to go away and do something else. Um, the question is, is God calling you or not? Mm. If he mm. is, the answer is yes. Yeah. Now, if it's not, um, then, it, then, it, then it's a no. But having said that, so we do get many clergy who come forward having have a, had a significant career. It's quite interesting. Many of our senior clergy now do that. Justin Welby, of course, was in the oil industry for many years. Um, Bishop Sarah, our yeah. new Bishop of London, uh, senior career as a nurse for many years. And so um, that's a really valuable thing. But I think for those who are ordained quite young, um, like I was or, or other, there are other ways of getting that. And that's partly about reading, listening to people, uh, making sure you do keep an ear to the realities of what it's like being a Christian outside the church and and um, the pressures upon Christians in those places. So it's, yeah. the, it's not the only way to do it, to have yeah. a kind of ex- experience. Uh, you mentioned Justin Welby. He gave a really interesting interview recently where he, he basically admitted that during this process of trying to figure out if he was called to be a vicar or not, the, the way he put it was really that he was quite strongly resisting it almost right mm-hmm. down to the the process of having a conversation with someone in the church and, and sort of saying well you know I think I am called but almost I don't want to be a, mm-hmm. and understanding that I guess for him there was a huge count in the cost and again he referenced the fact that um, you know going from being in the oil industry to, to being a vicar is probably quite a substantial pay cut and he was mm-hmm. he was counting the cost in some ways so so what does this sense of calling look like in reality well, what was that for you what does it mean to feel called to be uh, a vicar is is mm. this is this a feeling is this a, a kind of mm. spiritual revelation that you had H- how did it work for you well i i didn't have the problem of having a massive pay cut <laughs> working as a, a, a sort of junior assistant in a insurance company yeah, it wasn't exactly a lucrative way of life so i didn't have to worry about that too much at all um but obviously you're aware of the sacrifices that it brings if you get to become a, a vicar so for example if you're a vicar every time you change jobs you change house um, most people, when they change a job, you can stay in the same house, stay with the same friends, same networks, your kids are at the same school. If you're a vicar, that's not usually possible. So there are those kind of sort of hidden um, costs that, that that are in it. I think f- for me, it was a process of, um, uh, if you like, trying out Christian ministry in a number of ways. I was able to do that a bit at university, a bit during this year, working for a church afterwards, just trying out what, what does it feel like to kind of listen to people, be a pastor, um, preach and teach within the church, uh, are those things that uh, I feel when I do them, yeah, I, I kind of come alive or, or, or not. And I began to feel, yes, I, I do come alive when I do those things. I found I had a, um, uh, I mean, someone once said to me, you know, you if you, if you have a, um, a love for God, a love for the Bible and a love for people, that's the place where you start. Um, and if you if you if you don't have a strong Christian faith to begin with, or if Christian faith is alive, then mm-hmm. that's not going to go anywhere. If you don't really like the Bible and studying Christian mm-hmm. faith and being able to explain that to people, if you don't like people, it doesn't help either. No. <laughs> um, so if you got that, that's a basic um, outline for it. So I think uh, it was partly that, but also within the, the Church of England, as in other churches as well, it's partly your own feeling, mm-hmm. but also it's the church discerning that because you know our feelings can be misled you know we can get get the wrong end of the stick and feel ourselves to be cool but then other people have to come in and say actually yes we do think god is calling you or actually no we don't mm. and so there's about that twin process of both yes. you offering your own self and what you think god might be calling you to be but then the church coming in and mm. saying yeah we discern that's right or actually no we don't think that's the right thing mm. for you 
And sometimes people are surprised to learn that that actually you can be turned down for ordination. This mm. isn't just because I, I think some people have this kind of misconception that uh, it's a kind of easy career. You know, you you, mm. you mentioned moving house. Well, at least you get given a free house for the yep. time you're there, and sure. and oh, you just sort of look after people, run a few services. But actually, there is a sense in which the mm. church can say to a person, "No, we don't feel like this is right for you." Yeah, I think the, the church, and I think our approach to this is, or the right approach to this is, that every Christian is called to ministry. No question. If you're a Christian, if you're a baptized Christian, you're called to ministry. That's, you know, baptism is the route into ministry, not ordination. Um, so that's the starting point. The question is, is this person called to ordain ministry or not? And uh, within the way we do it in the Church of England, someone offers themselves for that. They go and talk to their vicar. They then go to an advisor within the diocese. Then the bishop makes the final decision as to whether they then go forward for the selection process. And that selection process is a, quite a long process, mm. maybe 18 months, two years, mm. uh, basically to try to help discern with this person, what is God calling mm. this person to do? And uh, most people I know of who go through that process find it a really helpful process, whether the answer is a yes or a no. Because if it's a no and you're not called to ordain ministry, there's some other form of ministry you're called to. And right. then it's helping to find what that might be at the same time. I understand your PhD was on St. Paul, Martin Luther and Blaise Pascal. Um, mm. If I asked you to explain it, would I understand the answer? <laughs> I don't know. Shall I give it a try? Give it a go. Uh, well, it was basically on... Um, a simple idea, which is the cross of Jesus Christ uh, is not just, um, if you like, the means of atonement, the way in which we are reconciled to God. Uh, it actually tells us something about God himself. Um, so it's an idea called the theology of the cross. And uh, I first encountered it in uh, Martin Luther uh, in sort of some of his early writings. Uh, he writes about how uh, the cross re reveals something about the way God works. He works in kind of strange ways that you don't expect. You wouldn't expect God's presence to be revealed in a, mm. a a man hanging on a cross outside yeah. Jerusalem in the first century. That's not where we expect God to be revealed. And um, then it was going back to the roots of that in the Bible. And um, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 um, talks about how the cross is the the weakness and the foolishness of God. Again, really strange phrase. Mm. The, the God being weak and foolish, what does that mean? Uh, and then I've been reading quite a lot of um, Blaise Pascal as well. And um, discovered the same sort of idea in, in him. And I think what was interesting about that was that you had a, a biblical idea um, that was in St. Paul, but being taken further by, if you like, the father of Protestantism, Martin, um, Luther, Martin yeah. Luther, and uh, a Catholic figure mm. within um, the sort of Catholic future of, of Europe in the 17th century, Blaise Pascal. So this seems to be an example of a kind of theology which was which worked right the way across the church. It didn't matter whether you're in the Protestant or the Catholic side. This was saying something important about the way God works in the world, which is not the way you would expect it to mm. expect Him to work. He works through through the cross to the resurrection, not straight to the resurrection. And yeah. so that's basically the idea. Fantastic. I could talk a lot more about it. And I understood it. So fantastic. Go. Isn't that great? Um, so obviously, you know, you've been very committed to, to theological study for, for years. Um, during that time, what have you changed your mind on? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you do change your mind on things, and uh, and I think I think I've changed my mind on what's important and what isn't within Christian faith. What's absolutely central and what isn't absolutely central. I think probably over time, theological study helps to refine and define a little mm. bit the sort of centre of Christian faith. They've been referred to before as kind of open-hand issues and closed-handed issues. You know, yeah. Those things that we kind of hold on to that are central that we can't sure. lose and other things that we yeah. can have a debate about. I think that's right. And I think f for me... That's focused around so many of the things that the 
creeds talk about. And there's a great deal of wisdom in the creed. They took a long time to kind of work them out. Several centuries of wrangling and discussions and councils and everything else. And so in other words, what they talk about, what they don't talk about, seems to me quite significant. And what they say about God seems to be quite crucial as well. So some of those core themes of, of incarnation, the fact that God took on human flesh, he entered into human flesh, he walked around as one of us. You know, if you shook the hand of Jesus, you were shaking the hand of God. And that seems to me something absolutely kind of central mm. to Christian faith. And I'm not sure I'd have said that, you know, when I was right. 20, 21. The Trinity, uh, the idea that, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, three persons in relationship with one another, persons who cannot be def- understood apart from their relations with one another. That seems to be so fundamental to so many other things in Christian faith. Mm. And again, I, you know, I mean, most Christians believe in the Trinity. I'd have ticked that box when I was 21, but I'm not sure I'd have said that's absolutely central to, to Christian faith. Mm. But increasingly, I, I find it is that actually the nature of the God that we believe in and being able to clarify our understanding of that seems to be so crucial mm. to um, to Christian faith. So those are the kind of things that became more central to me, I think, than mm. probably I would have said when I was 21. Yeah. So there are some things that have kind of become more important, but you haven't you haven't changed your mind on the nature of the Trinity. You haven't changed your, your mind on the actual substance of it. Are there other things, though, where you think, well, I used to believe X and now I believe Y? Well, I think, I suppose, when you think about, um, you know, questions about... Um, the Bible, how you understand the Bible. Uh, I still read the Bible every day. Um, the Bible seems to me to be absolutely central to our Christian nurture. It's something that in terms of you can't grow as a Christian without reading Scripture. Um, I think my understanding of, of, of the, the, the text and how it works, I think, has been, is, has, I think, you know, grown and deepened over the years. I think probably when I was 21, I would have wanted to be very strict every single detail has to be exactly as it happened at the time um whereas i think the thing i've come to believe actually the purpose of the writing of scripture was not exact documentary accuracy um it's that bit at the end of john's gospel that says these things are written that you may believe that jesus is the christ and believing you may have life in his name that's the purpose of scripture and therefore there's all kinds of different genres all kinds of different writings that you find in there and actually the writers of scripture aren't always quite as Mm. as um, concerned as we are in getting absolutely every little detail exactly right. So I think I'm a little bit more relaxed about that, and I think yeah. that actually enriches my understanding of Scripture. So I guess the sort of technical term for that would be you, you wouldn't believe in inerrancy, you know, that, that every single fact is um, exactly, literally true. I would say, I don't think that's a helpful word to use about the Bible. I think it just focuses you on the wrong question. It focuses you on... Um, you know, the kind of detail of can I prove this particular historical detail to be true or not? And it, well, you might get there and prove that it is true. Um, but has that helped you to believe in in Jesus and, you know, and, and have life in, in his name? Has that helped you to get the actual kind of message of Scripture at the heart of it? Now, I do believe that the, you know, the, the, the sweep of Scripture is based on history. Mm-hmm. I think it seems to me that's an, an important corollary of the Incarnation the fact that God entered into human history. This isn't just a set of ideas descended from on high. Um, Christian faith interacts with history. It has to. And therefore, there has to be a core of, 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 of if you like, um, absolute historical truth within this. So things like the resurrection seems to me, it's not really an option to mm. say, well, it's just a bit of a story. It's yeah. a metaphor. It's something like that. It's not a metaphor at all. It's a reality. It's a historical reality that the physical body of Jesus was raised on the third day. 
Um, now you can argue about you know um, how that relates to kind of events at the time and so on, and you know how much it is in a sort of interaction of the divine with the the, the human and so on. But you know. I, it seems to be crucial to our understanding of Christian faith that that, that wasn't just a, a myth. Mm. Uh, there was a historical reality to that. Yeah. So I guess that's what I would say about it. In, uh, in 2005, you moved to London to launch St. Paul's Theological Centre. Mm. What was the vision behind that? Well, I'd been um, involved in theological education in the Church of England for about 15, 16 years to that stage in... Um, in uh, a, um, a really good theological college in, in Oxford, um, Wycliffe Hall, which I was where I was the vice principal for many years. And I loved it. I think it's a great place to be. Still is a great place to study. And um, uh, and I have a lot of respect for, for that way of, of doing theological training. I guess it, as time went on, I began to become aware that maybe there's we're missing a little bit of a trick here because so often I would have the conversation with students in college and they would say, well, you know, I'm called to, to, to ministry. I'm called to you know pastoral work preaching evangelism and so on all i'm doing is sitting here writing essays and you could sort of see them shriveling up as time because they weren't you know because it unlike me you know who, who found i love writing essays i love doing all the <laughs> academic yeah. intellectual stuff not everyone did and, and um and also even some of the some of the kind of more intellectual students uh you sometimes think well actually it's just all cerebral it's all in their heads right, yeah they're not actually unearthing this in, in in real practice and so i suppose the 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 vision for it was to say is there another form of theological training which is much more rooted in the church which is rooted in real church experience which is um uh, giving people the ability to relate the theology that they're learning to the practice of ministry at the same time rather than doing it all the theology in one go and then um, then they kind of practice later on, and so that was really the 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 the, the idea for it. So you know, could we do a form of theological training yep. that enable people to be to stay in local churches, to be involved in ministry while mm. doing their academic study, and yep. help them to relate one to the other? And then just two years later, it merged and became basically St. Melitus, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, which is now, uh, it's been described as the largest vicar factory in the country. Mm, mm. Um, really quite remarkable story of growth since 2007. Yeah, we started, I think, in 2007. Well, when we began, I think we had nine ordinands in our first year. Uh, it's a bit of a trial exercise. Um, I think we now have, across the whole country, 260-odd uh, ordinands in training. Um so I, I think it was one of those things that it was just the right time and the right place. You know, the Church of England was going through quite a bit of thinking about models of theological training. And uh, the two things that happened, there was this, thinking, this process about how do we do theological training? There was an openness to new ways and, and trying to imagine new ways to do it. But also at the same time, there was a thing called the Mission Shaped Church Report that came out at that time, around that time, which is saying, actually, we, we need to, f- to find new ways of doing church in our society. Some of the older ways aren't always working. And I think the combination of those two things meant there was an appetite for new ideas. There was an appetite for, 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 for new uh, ventures. And so actually coming up with a that idea um, at that time, it was the kind of right idea at the right time. And um, somehow in the providence of God, it seemed to, um, to, to to catch people's attention. And a lot of students wanted to study this way. 
You're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. It's The Profile, where we sit down with a different Christian every week to find out more about their life, faith and testimony. Today I'm speaking to Bishop Graham Tomlin, the Bishop of Kensington. And do stick around, because in part two we're going to be hearing more, not only about his life and faith, but specifically about how the church responded to the Grenfell Tower fire almost exactly one year ago. Bishop Graham was a central figure at that moment in time, overseeing much of the church's response. So join us again. We'll be right back after this. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue. Find out how the church reacted to the Grenfell Tower fire in our exclusive interview with Bishop Graham Tomlin. Plus, is hidden disappointment killing the church? We look at how to handle this difficult emotion and discover Christian views on gender and women's ministry in the church. Plus five miraculous stories, news, reviews and more. Out now in the June edition. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, with you this afternoon for The Profile. Today I'm speaking to Bishop Graham Tomlin, and in the second part of today's interview we're going to look specifically at the Grenfell Tower fire. Because Bishop Graham Tomlin was really a central figure at the time, not only in speaking to the media, being a spokesperson for a lot of the church's work, but actually overseeing the good work of Christians in the area and actually himself ministering to local people. So we're going to be finding out more about that in the second part of today's interview. Let's listen in to the rest of my conversation with Bishop Graham Tomlin. How would you describe your calling? I think um, my calling is to it's to strengthen the church is to build up the church um and uh i think i do that in all kinds of ways i think the the primary way in which i've felt my calling is to do that is by helping uh, to people to understand the christian faith and its richness and its depth and the way it applies to life and culture and so many other different parts of our kind of regular experience um and i suppose through all my different bits of ministry as a curate, as a chaplain, as a theological college tutor, and now as a bishop. Um, I think that's the thing that that is kind of been constant within that, you know, a call to the church. So I haven't wanted to go and work in a secular university, for example, as a call to the church, but also a call to helping people to understand Christian faith and how it works, how it fits together, how it makes sense of life. And um, so I think that's what I'd say. Were you surprised to be made a bishop? Uh, in one sense, yes. I mean, I, I never, um, I certainly never set out to be a bishop. I mean, I think I remember having conversations with it's the last thing I'd want to do. You know, who would ever want to be a bishop? Um, so Gotta I be was careful what you say. I you? know exactly that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I remember even before that, you know, when I was a teenager, saying the last thing I want to do is be a vicar. You know, <laughs> so you never quite know, do you? It's a dangerous thing to say, whatever you do. Um, so you know, it, it really certainly was not what I'd set out to do at all. In fact, I'm always slightly suspicious of people who set out to become bishops mm. or whatever. But um, I guess I as the time drew on, as I was on my time during, during St. Melitus, I had a number of conversations with um, the then Bishop of London, Richard Chartres, and uh, he was saying to me, look, I, you know, I think you ought to think about this as a possible way. I suppose the more I began to think about it, um, the more I... Sp- uh, again, I, I say a bit, a bit like we were talking about earlier on with that original call to ordained ministry, uh, whether you're called to a 
within our Anglican system, a deacon, a priest, a bishop, you kind of have to discern that. And it's partly has to be your own sense of calling to it. Also the church right. recognizing that too. And I suppose I, I thought, yeah, this idea of oversight, this idea of um, uh, thinking about the whole life of the church rather than just an individual church or an individual college. Um, uh, and rather than just being involved in theological training, the early stages of, uh, of ministry, um, is God calling me at this stage of my life to be involved in helping the whole church to uh, to grow and allowing some of the teaching experience and gifts that I have to be used on a broader mm. canvas? It seemed to be um, uh, seemed to that, that seemed to mm. you know ring a lot of bells yeah. with me, and so yeah, yeah. So so you find yourself sort of um, you know this may not be a popular phrase, but part of the kind of Church of England establishment, mm. um, and yet with that call, you say you want to make the Christian faith known and accessible to people. But but do you think there is a bit of a disconnect with some people feeling like? Um, the Church of England doesn't really represent where they're at. I mean, you know, you're Oxford mm. educated, mm. very intellectual. Mm. For some people, that might be a bit off-putting. Say, so, well, that's sure. that's not really where I'm at. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a, it's an issue that we, I mean, not just the Church of England, the whole Church in the UK has to has to grapple with. I think one of the things we have to to work out quite hard at the moment is that, so for example, you know, people who. Um, uh, who uh, you know come through our systems to get ordained? I mean, you look at the clergy. Um, there's a lot of very kind of white um, people in it. I mean, the, the um, uh, thankfully the balance is shifting towards men and women. In fact, it's now around fifty percent either way, which is really really helpful in terms of people getting ordained. Um, but at the moment, there are large parts of the of society that we're not yet touching, and that I think makes us think again about our systems of how we prepare people for ministry, how we do the selection process, what we're looking for, uh, what we recognize. And I think there are some things that we do need to change in the way we do that uh, to make sure that actually people who at the moment feel, oh, I could never get ordained because they don't ordain people like me, mm. actually can get ordained. And yes. we can recognize that calling in those people. Well, Bishop um, Philip North made comments last year that were very widely reported about um, the church as being complicit in the abandonment of the poor. Mm. And there was a lot of media coverage and a lot of people saying things. But but what kind of – has there been any action since then, do you think, within the church to say, well, you know, are we too middle class? And if mm. so, what do we actually do to change that? Mm. I think there are some really quite encouraging discussions going on around that. I mean, both around um, – both around women, for example, I, mean, I think the appointment of Bishop Sarah as Bishop of London, I think, is a really great step forward. It, means it makes it a very visible appointment of a senior woman within um, uh, the uh, uh, the Church of England. I think that's, that's that's very good news on that side. Um, there are just stuff going on at the, on the ground in terms of how we uh, um, how we promote and make the most of, of, of clergy who do come from a a non-white background, for example. Mm-hmm. I think there are things we need to do. One of the things we we do at the moment is that we have a uh, a goal that we are, you know, clergy when they're ordained are nationally deployable. In other words, they can go anywhere. Now, I, I think that's, that's that's a very middle class thing. You know, if you're middle class, you're basically educated in order to be able to go anywhere. You know, you're educated in such a way that you can go into any situation and you're confident and you can manage it. But actually, that's a very cultural thing. Mm. And uh, the problem is that you then take some of those people and put them into kind of situations that actually they may initially be quite confident in but actually don't really relate to very well and in some way i think of some of the some of the estates some of the kind of tougher areas across my episcopal area what i would love to see is rather than kind of you know jettisoning in someone from a very different background into that environment uh, can we raise up leadership from those communities because they will they will very often be the best kind of people now they may not be nationally deployable they may be brilliant for that kind of context so I think one of the things we need to do is to get away from that idea that every clergy person has to be 
flexible enough to go anywhere. Mm. We need some people like that. Mm-hmm. But actually, we need to to to, to uh, identify and discern and enable people in very specific circumstances to recognize the call of God, raise them up into leadership within those local Christian communities, because they'll be much, much better at it than someone like me just mm. jettisoning in from outside. Mm. I want to talk a bit more um, about evangelicals in, in the Church of England. Last year, Premier Christianity magazine ran a, a feature called How Evangelicals Took Over the Church of England. And we looked at the rise of HDB, the rise of St. Melitus even. Um, people like yourselves, well-known evangelicals um, in senior positions, even Justin Welby from an evangelical background. And interestingly, everyone we spoke to across the board agreed that there had been an increase in evangelical influence in one way or the other on the Church of England. That seemed to be agreed. What was disputed was whether this was a positive thing or a negative mm-hmm. thing. I'd love to hear your take on that. I think... That's right. There has been a, I mean, there was a, a significant moment back in the 70s, I think it was, when, if you like, the um, evangelicals in the Church of England took a kind of policy decision to stay with it, not to just jump ship and join a separate denomination, but actually to kind of invest in the Church of England to, to stay within that. And I think there's, and obviously evangelicalism is quite a complex thing. The Church of England is quite a complex thing. And there are very many different sort of strands to it. But I think generally speaking, um, uh, Evangelicals within the Church of England have, most of them, I think, have, have tried to do to, to to stay within the Church of England, exercise uh, ministry within that, um, not just as the best boat to fish from, um, but actually as a commitment, uh, as a sort of, as a conviction that the Church of England is the national church. It's 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 the historic church of, in England. It's uh, not just that it opens doors, but there's a real strength to it, but also in a way that is trying not to be too kind of party focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes think, you know, if if, uh, if we ju- if evangelicals are just saying, you know, it's just about being evangelical, um, and actually we're not that bothered about other traditions within the church, that's actually missing something really quite important. Because I think, I actually do think evangelicals have quite a lot to learn from Catholics within the Church of England. Mm-hmm. The Church of England has always been this strange, you know, coalition between the Catholic and Protestant bits of the church that got left behind after the Reformation. And we decided to stick together rather than separate out into different churches, which is what they did on the continent. Here we tried to say, okay, well, well, you know, people from a more Catholic background, people from mm-hmm. a more Protestant background, we're kind of in the same church. We've got to learn from one another. And I think that's the really exciting thing, to hold on to your own identity or background as an evangelical or as a catholic whatever background you have within the church but as you say i've got a lot to learn from other people in my own church does that historical perspective what you just mentioned about after after the reformation deciding to stick together when presumably you know different parts of the church differed on really quote-unquote important theological Mm. issues you Mm. decide to stay together Mm. does that way of thinking help you when it comes to the contemporary debate around same-sex marriage when you have journalists like me saying that you would the church of england will never hold this together the anglican communion will never hold this together you've got people with wildly different views on same-sex marriage you you can't hold the whole church together on this I think, it, I think it does. I mean, I think you, know, you think of the 16th century, I mean, some of the key issues were around your understanding of Holy Communion. What was actually going on there? And we burnt each other over those de- debates. And you know, now, you know, we don't tend to have that as a kind of key debate. Yeah, there are in some parts of the church, but we tend to sort of think, oh, well, that's a, an issue we can live with. But at the time, this this was this was life and death. It was really quite a, it was the, the, the issue that divided the church. Um, and yet somehow... In the church, we found a way to live together on that. Um, now, I'm not saying that's going to be easy within some of our current debates at the same time. We've kind of found a way to live together with, with the, the, the women's ministry issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many with deep Christian convictions or convictions for whom women's ordination as priests or bishops 
um, they just cannot go there yeah. um, from evangelical and Catholic backgrounds. Yet we found a way to live together with that. But the distinction people always point out with that is that we, I think people can understand why when it comes to church structure, there might be differences of opinion. I think people have a harder time when it comes to what's sin sure. or what separates you from God, where yep. you have parts of the church saying, actually, this is absolutely fine. God blesses you. And other parts saying, if you do that, you're under God's judgment. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I'm not saying that the issues are the same uh, at all. I think they are different and there are different sort of dimensions to, 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 to these different issues that we have. I think the only point I'd want to make on, on this is that Somehow in the Church of England, we've had a we've had a kind of genius for somehow um, making things work by living together in a way that's been surprising. Mm. I think it would have been very surprising to think in the middle of the 16th century that the Church of England could ever work, given the deep divides over over Holy Communion. Um, you know, we think at the moment, you know, is it going to be possible to hold the Church together over the sexuality debates? And, uh, you know, we have strong commitments, convictions on, on people have strong convictions on, on both sides, deeply held and importantly so, because, as you say, it's, it's really quite a crucial issue. And yet, um, I guess my, my hope is that we can find a way for the church to hold together and not actually go into the kind of schism which doesn't really do anyone any favors at the end of the day um, on that issue without somehow compromising something crucial about Christian faith. Now, um, this month, many people are reflecting on one year on from Grenfell Tower and the disaster that happened there, the, the terrible fire. Where were you on the 14th of June last year and what are your memories of that time? Well, I, I think the first thing I found was actually from Premier Radio, funnily enough. It was actually that I woke up at six o'clock, which is what I normally do. And uh, I looked at my phone and I saw a little tweet from, um, I think it was a direct message from, I think from here, from, from Premier Radio, saying, would I, would I comment on the fire? So, of course, I thought, what, what fire? Mm. And uh, so I mentioned, went, on, went online and discovered that this tower block had caught fire and in um, West London, in North Kensington. And uh, I, I quickly went to look at where it was and was it in one of my parishes and realized that, yes, it was in St. Clement's Parish. Um, and uh, I, I knew the, the, the priest there, Alan Everett, and so I, I got on the phone to him immediately and took a while to get through, uh, but eventually found out what was going on there. And um, and it's one of those, I think, those sort of instinctive moments where you you don't quite know why you do it looking back, but I realized at the time I just had to drop everything at that moment. This was something really quite significant happening in one of our parishes and one of our churches very very close to it. So I literally canceled everything that day. Um, got on the train, got a taxi, got as near as I possibly could to um, to Grenfell Tower. Walked the last little bit. Uh, on my way there, I um, I rang the local borough commander, the who was the, the in charge of the police operation there, and said to her, um, hey, "Look, I'm I'm on my way up to to Grenfell Tower. Is there anything I can do?" And she said, "Well, it, it would be really helpful to have someone who was just to be able to be with the firefighters who were going in and out of the building because they're having to do and." and to see some pretty distressing things uh, while they're doing this. And just if someone was around just to talk with them and, uh, and so on, that would be really helpful. So I, I quickly called around a couple of other clergy and uh, got a little team of people. We uh, went up to the, um, the, I believe there was a cordon around the building, of course, because only the emergency services were allowed in. I think we were the only non-emergency services people allowed into the base of the tower on the day. And so I spent much of the morning uh, just with firefighters, talking with them as they were going in and out, just reassuring them, listening to their stories, just trying to tell them that what they do really matters and that mm. everybody else 
in the country is really rooting for them. Uh, so I spent half the morning doing that, half the morning back in St. Clement's Church, uh, which had opened its doors at three in the morning, uh, and by this stage was full of very bewildered people, many of them still in their pyjamas, wandering around, having been evacuated from the local, from either the tower or the local um, uh, walkways themselves. Um, full of donations that were being brought, it was immediately becoming a kind of emergency centre. So that's kind of what I did on the morning. Uh, you also found yourself, I think, quite quickly um, appearing in various media outlets, not just here on Premier mm. Christian Radio, mm. but, I mean, I remember that day going home and, and flipping on BBC News and, and there you were. Mm. Um, did anything kind of prepare you for that? A, a bishops given media training in <laughs> these sorts of situations? Uh, well, you're given a little bit of media training and um, actually very good media training when I became a bishop. And we're doing a day on this kind of thing. But um, no one quite prepares you for something of that magnitude. And it was very interesting to watch the whole 24-7 media machine kind of come into operation, descending upon a mm. local community in that way, which was um, both fascinating and disturbing in some ways. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. In what way was it disturbing? Was, was it kind of raise ethical questions for you? Well, it did some of it. Um, I think... Uh, I remember, I remember doing one interview uh, nearby. I mean, I did many, many interviews over those few days, and one of them we actually had to stop because one of the local people was just so angry and uh, annoyed by the kind of media intrusion into people's lives that they were just shouting at the media and telling them to go away and so on. And there was certainly a feeling that that um, I think there's something about the 24-7 media beast, if you like, that just needs feeding. And there were media from all over the world and uh, everybody wanted an interview with something. They wanted to feed, fill the news channels with something. And uh, sometimes that was fine because obviously a story needs to be told. It's so important. But sometimes that was quite intrusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember talking to one of the local uh, residents who, a very intelligent man, giving his reflections on the, on the story. And um, he was interviewed by... Um, by a, um, I can't remember, it was radio or TV, but um, he gave quite a long interview offering his thoughts and reflections uh, upon it. But the only bit that actually was was put on radio was the bit where he burst into tears and put his arm around a, a friend. It was almost as if they were after the emotion, not mm. the not the argument, which did seem to me a bit irresponsible. Um, and there was certainly a degree of intrusiveness into the into a quite a traumatized community at that time, which really did not help. And to be honest, I think it's one of the issues that's, that we're going to be facing coming up to the first year anniversary as well, um, because I think there's going to be a, it's still a very traumatized community. Mm. And uh, obviously with the year anniversary coming up, there's going to be a lot of media interest in it, lots of programs being made, and lots of people looking for interviews, uh, raking up things that mm. actually may be just beginning to settle in people's lives. And so I think there is a real issue for sort of media responsibility mm. when it comes to the reporting of some of the stories that will come out in the inquiry, some of the um, uh, the kind of memories at the time. And uh, I think media really do have to be quite responsible in the way they mm. approach yes. um, the, the one-year anniversary mm. uh, because it's not just for the sake of the industry. It's actually mm. how do we care for this local community mm. that's been deeply traumatized. Mm. Can you tell us more about um, the local churches and how exactly they put themselves into action, what they did, what you observed? Mm. Because I think many people have, have commented on how impressed they were, really, with local churches with immediately responding. But I'd like to hear from you firsthand exactly what happened. Yeah. Well, churches responded in quite a number of ways. And I think the great thing about churches is that they're on the ground. You know, we don't have to parachute ourselves in. 
and we've got churches on the ground there. So there was a parish church nearby, St. Clement's. It struck me also when the Parsons Green attack happened a little bit later on in the same summer, um, which is also in, in my area. Again, there was a parish church nearby. Every incident happens in a, in a parish. Mm. And so from the Church of England, we have a, a presence on the ground already. Uh, there were a number of other churches as well, Latimer Christian Centre, the Catholic Church around the corner, uh, St. Francis, um, uh, a number of other parish churches, and so uh, Pentecostal churches in that area. And uh, they responded in a number of different ways. One was simply to use their buildings. So St. Clement's, for example, became a, uh, a centre for uh, people to bring goods and clothes and donations for, for local people. It became a place where people could just simply be and rest. Uh, St. Clement's as a parish has an associated charity called the Clement James Centre, which does brilliant work in the local area. That became a really important centre for people just to get counselling, to get help, just to be um, to be still and be quiet, you know, away from the media glare and, and, and everything else. Um, so churches used their buildings. They were places of, um, of kind of refuge for, for, for people just to rest. Uh, there's also a kind of important sort of, sort of um, vigil kind of liturgical aspect to it as well. We, we put on a service in one of the local churches on the Friday night after the, the fire of the fire was a Wednesday morning, um, which was simply a very quiet, reflective service. Uh, just enabling people just to process it, just have a moment of stillness, because there was a lot of activity going on, lots of media stuff, lots of trying to work out where everybody was. People were just running around crazily, but actually having a moment just to stop and to pause was really quite significant. And a number of churches did that across the area. Latimer Christian Centre did a fantastic job of, again, very near mm. in the shadow of the um, the tower, becoming a real centre for, the, uh, for kind of the relief effort as well. Mm. Did you feel like... Um, there was a wider appreciation of the church in that moment in in the media amongst politicians that, that maybe there was a bit of a wake-up call for some people and recognising, oh, the, the church does more than just a Sunday morning service. I think, that that's, I think there is something of that. I think it was, it was kind of widely reported about the significance of the local church response. No, not, not just churches as well. Local mosques did a, did a really good job in the same sort of way too. So, But it was the significance of local faith communities. The other thing about the Grenfell area. It's quite a religious area. Mm. It's not actually, you know, secular atheist right. heaven. It's, it's actually a lot of religious people live in mm. that area. Not all Christian, of course. Uh, a large number of Muslims in, in the area. But faith really matters in that area. And so faith communities matter in that area too. And um, uh, people would often turn to faith. They would turn to church. I mean, the churches are not big in that area. We haven't got big mega churches there. Mm. And they're quite small churches in many ways. Um but the fact that they were there, present on the ground, able to open their doors, able to offer a welcome, able to offer space, uh, a kind of non-judgmental space where people could come and uh, just get the help they mm. needed. And especially where you had churches that had set up um, you know, uh, agencies like the Clement James Centre, for example, that was able to do some of that work locally was quite significant, I think. Is it true that there was actually such an outpouring, uh, not just in London, but I think even nationally, of, of kind of collective grief and horror at the situation? Is it true that uh, actually too much material was donated at one point mm. to, to help people? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in some ways, uh, I mean, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was brilliant to see this great outpouring of compassion um, in the first few days, everybody wanted to help. And people were coming from all over the country. People, I remember people driving down saying, I've come from Wolverhampton and here's my bag of clothes that I've gathered together and I want to give it to the people from Grenfell. And so all this stuff was, was collected. In many ways, far more than was, was needed. But I think a good solution was found. A lot of the stuff that was 
donated, which couldn't be used by the families, was then resold, I think, in Red Cross um, charity centres, and then the, then the money collected and then funneled back into the mm. the, um, uh, the ethical relief effort yeah. for the community. So, uh, but it was a, just a, one of those brief moments, I think, when in London we we lost our fear of each other. Mm. Um, so many times we just live in these little pockets where we talk to our friends, our neighbours, and no one else. But somehow, for that brief moment, for for, for forty eight hours or whatever it was, everyone thought we've got to do something to help. Mm. And uh, so they came to, to North Kensington. They gave, gave their time, and, and, and some people did what they could. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. So it was a, it was a, a great, you know, outpouring yeah. of of, of um, charity and giving. Um, probably probably more than was needed at the time, but then it was used really helpfully longer term. What is the situation now? One year on. I'm thinking particularly of the families of those affected, those who were caught up in the actual tower block themselves. Mm-hmm. What's the situation there? Well, there's a number of things you could say. One is the housing question is still uh, not resolved. Um, there are around 210 families who I think are need who need rehousing. Uh, as we, um, the number has been creeping up, uh, but still over half of that that number is still not found uh, permanent housing. Uh, many of them still in in. Uh, emergency accommodation in other words hotel rooms hotels are fine for a week but you know not for not for six nine months and so um so that's an ongoing issue for many many people the fact that that they still don't know where they're going to be living long term and that proper adequate housing housing hasn't been found um i think there's still a lot of distress locally uh, i was talking earlier on about a, a traumatized community i think it is that you know you've got people who lost close friends close family members who lost their homes they lost everything uh, through no fault of their own they were just they went to bed mm. on an ordinary summer evening like we all do and suddenly you wake up and your entire life has been torn apart like that and it seems to me we have a responsibility as a society when something like that happens to do everything we possibly can to mm. make sure those people uh, get the treatment they need and get the help to get them back on the feet and um, get the housing and the structures they need. So I think it's, housing is an issue. I think the ongoing kind of mental health impact on people, but I've noticed many people in the local area really struggling, uh, especially people who've been deeply involved in some of the questions uh, around it, um, whether it's sort of political questions or the community action questions. Um, it's taken a great toll upon them sort of physically and, uh, and emotionally as well. Uh, so those issues are, are there as well. Um, so I think those 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 are the kind mm. of issues that still carry on. Yeah, I mean, you say that area. as a society, we all have a duty to make sure people are housed. Obviously, everyone would agree with that, which means that there's some fault to apportion here. There's some, there's some blame to apportion here to say someone somewhere has made a decision or made decisions that mean that there are currently people still in hotel rooms and not in houses. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the um, who's to blame. Well, obviously, the inquiry is a key part of that. Um, we have this public inquiry, and the, and the job of the public inquiry is to find out exactly the answer to that question. Uh, were decisions made that were cutting corners, uh, that were just trying to economize? Um, there is a feeling locally that uh, basically there was a kind of unwritten policy to sort of gentrify the area, and gradually you could just slightly neglect social housing because actually at the end of the day, if we sell it off and and um, you know, sell it off to overseas investors, then we can make more money out of it. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but there is a perception mm. of that in the local area. And uh, so excuse me, the inquiry is a really important part of this because the but inquiry that, needs to is get... Is that going to finish before one year? No, it's not going to finish before one year. These things take take time. We hope it's not going to be as long as the as the Hillsborough one did. 
And I think there are serious questions about the inquiry. I think it's a shame that the inquiry hasn't been able to involve more local people in its decision-making processes. Um, I think if it had, it would be much more likely uh, to get traction locally. I think the fear is that because uh, there's a lot of local people feel the inquiry is a slightly distant process that doesn't really involve them mm -hmm. so much. Uh, the fear is that that the um, the results may not be accepted as widely as mm. as as, uh, as we might hope. But it seems to be really quite important that they are mm. because we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to know whether there are um, there is blame to be allocated. I think it's it's. There are all kinds of speculations as to who was to blame on it, but it seems mm. to me the inquiry has that job and we really need to get to the bottom of it because without without that truth, you can't get to justice mm. and without justice, you can't get to reconciliation. Yes. And that's the ultimate goal, yeah. reconciliation. I mean, I remember in the, in the days following the disaster, there seemed to be a huge amount of anger. Mm. Um, righteous anger, perhaps? Yeah, I think there was, and there still is and in the local community. I think there was a genuine feeling that um, warnings were not heeded. Uh, there clearly were warnings about the state of the tower, the um, quality of the cladding, the um, the upkeep of, of that tower uh, that weren't listened to. And, um, and, uh, and against the background of that kind of um, feeling of neglect, you can understand the anger of local people when something like this happens mm. because it felt like a, a tragedy that shouldn't have happened mm. in a 21st century city like London. That was a predominant feeling, I remember, in those first few days. How can this possibly happen in London? You, know, you can imagine it happening in maybe, you know, two-thirds world's countries where there isn't the infrastructure, there aren't housing regulations, there aren't sort of health and safety, there isn't sort of the fire regulations that mm. we have. But we are a very regular, regu you know, we're, mm. you know, regulations are, are there mm. um, in practice. And, you know, we, we pride ourselves in in uh, proper engineering and proper safety. Mm. How could something like this happen in London? Yeah. And um, so I think that naturally mm. led to a sense of anger. Yeah. Just one more question on Grenfell. Um, do you ever wonder what would have been different or what it would have looked like on the ground had the churches you mentioned and the faith communities you mentioned not been there? Well, I think, I think there would have been a much, much more of a sense, where, where do we go? You know, when you're in an absolute crisis, where do you go? And it's very significant that in those moments, people went to the church, they went to the mosque, they went to those, no, not just those, there were community centres that people went to as well, but um, the churches, the mosques, and the faith centres were really quite important places. And I think particularly the churches, um, churches have a motivation for doing that. Mm. You know, churches, we have a strong belief because of our belief that God made every single person, that every single human being is someone for whom Christ died and, and who is made in the image of God. Therefore, every single human people, regard, person, regardless of their background, colour, religion, is of value. Uh, therefore, we have a, a kind of motivation for doing what we do. Uh, of opening our doors to make sure that we we try to do whatever we possibly can to love our neighbour, not just to tolerate our neighbour, um, and not just to love the, those close to us, our family and our friends, but to love our neighbour, the person that God has put next door to you, whatever they may look like and whatever they may be like. And that is such a crucial value. And that, of course, comes out of a love for God, it seems to me. Mm. The, the reason why we're able to love our, our, our neighbour is because uh, we've first learnt to love God. We've learnt a kind of a, a general posture of gratitude towards the world, that what I have is not mine, 
It's been given to me by God, and I'm grateful for that, and therefore I don't hold on to it. I don't try and possess it. I don't say it's just mine, and it's just for me and my community, even my Christian community. Uh, I, I, you know, we try to hold that in an open-handed way, and so there are kind of deep roots to why we do what we do as the Christian church. And so I think if, if, the, if the churches weren't present at that time, I think there would have been a much more diffuse um, kind of response to it, mm. uh, because actually the Christian churches were able to provide a focus for that response, both physically in terms of the building, but also in terms of communities that were able to welcome and um, and and to help to begin to coordinate some of those immediate uh, mm. needs that was quite significant. Mm. Now, uh, we are nearly out of time, but I, I can't let you go before asking quite a big question. Um, but it is really a question I think all Christians are asking, and, and perhaps to a certain extent, especially those in, in the, the Church of England. And it is this general feeling that secularism, even atheism, is kind of on the march and that people are people are attending church less and less. And coupled with that as well, I think many would would argue we're seeing an increase in kind of not just rejection of of Christianity, but actually hostility towards it. So we've talked a lot about how the church uh, responded well to Grenfell. But equally, there are those who say, well, you're a a bishop with the ability to sit in the House of Lords and we should separate uh, faith and politics. And we don't want the church interfering in our political business. There does seem to be these kind of feelings out there. And I know this is a huge topic. and We've only got a few minutes, but I did want to put that to you and really ask the question, are you optimistic about the future of the church, specifically the Church of England in the UK? Um, I'm, I'm always optimistic because I think I have to be as a Christian. Um, as Christians, we deal in hope. Uh, we deal in resurrection. And um, I think that doesn't mean there aren't serious questions to ask about the church and how we relate to a society which is becoming less, um, well, not less religious, because we are still quite religious, it seems to me. We're not as secular, I think, as many people um, uh, think. Uh, there is still a lot of latent faith out there, but how is that drawn out and how do we relate to, uh, to that? So there are serious, serious questions about it. I think we also have to recognize the deep, deep Christian roots of our society and our culture. And uh, I fear that one of the things we're doing as a culture is in very rapid times, we're kind of moving away from a, a, a sort of deep well of wisdom that we have drawn upon as, as a culture for centuries. And in a relatively rapid period of time, we're moving away from that. And I, I kind of fear for what that will, that will bring um, in the longer term about some of the, because some of the, so many of the things that we really value in, in our society um, in terms of the centrality of trust, the, the importance of, 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 of justice, the importance of the value of each individual human being seems to be actually founded upon a kind of um, uh, that deep conviction that every single person is a value because mm. they are made in the image of God. Um, and once you take away that building block, you take away something a really important uh, and foundational um, uh, the building block of, of our of our culture, which I begin to worry about. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm hopeful about the church, not because I I am you know I'm sort of um, naive about it. I think there's some serious work we have to do in terms of both intellectually making the case for Christian faith. I think we need to do that um, to show that Christian faith makes sense. Building local churches that are attractive and open and warm and welcoming and are relevant to local communities and embedded in those local communities. We need to be doing that. Um, and I do think that the Christian church has a role within wider society as well because you cannot understand the modern world without religion. Mm. Um, the secularism agenda was basically, or, or you know, the secularization theory was saying decades ago, well, it's all going secular, religion's been left behind. That's clearly not the case. 
You know, the, the, the mainstream kind of motivations of people, for better or worse sometimes, these days are religious for a lot of people. Um, Christianity may be struggling here in Europe, but it's thriving in other parts of the world. You cannot understand the modern world without religion. And trying to kind of create some public space which has no space for religion at all seems to be a, uh, a crazy thing to do. Uh, you're actually cutting off a huge source of human wisdom. You're also cutting off something which is a, a major movement across the world, even if it's struggling here in Europe at the moment. Uh, so I, I am hopeful. I think actually uh, we may well see a, a kind of return to Christian faith um, as uh, as time goes on and some of the you know the, the kind of important things that it offers to mm. to, to our society are, um, are laid clear. That's a great note to end on, Bishop Graham. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Sam Howes. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. That was my interview with Bishop Graham Tomlin. Do hope you enjoyed that. You're listening to The Profile. This is the show every Saturday afternoon where we delve into a person's life and faith. Uh, talking specifically about the Grenfell Tower disaster because we're almost exactly one year on from that day. Coming up next though here on Premier Christian Radio, it's Premier Playback. We'll see you next week.